The Bob Murphy Show, episode 172. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show i am going to change the approach of the podcast a little bit. So I'm going to keep the alternating me doing a solo episode, just talking about highbrow stuff, giving you all some edutainment and then interspersed with interviews, alternating back to back like that as I've been doing. But I think what I'm going to do is on the solo episodes, it's going to be okay if they're like a half an hour. Whereas before I had gotten to a groove where I thought, oh man, I got to give them at least an hour's worth of content. Otherwise, they're going to think I'm shortchanging them. But I have rethought that because I just know with my own consumption of other people's content, a lot of times you look at something that's an hour long, you don't even want to start it because you're thinking, you know, it's kind of like why I never tried heroin. I might like it, right? And then, (laughs) so basically I'm saying my podcast is very addictive and so we want to limit the dosage. But in all seriousness, that, that's what I'm going to do because I think it'll make it easier to reach a wider audience, get more people listening. But also too, I think for a lot of you probably, you would rather I crank out more episodes that are shorter rather than just like waiting. And, and, and also too, there's like this thing where if I have a topic I want to cover, but it doesn't, I don't have too many points, then I'll just leave it in the back burner because, oh, wait, that's, that's not just, a, you know, it's not going to justify a whole episode's treatment if I think the episode has to be an hour long. All right, so I think I'll be able to bang out some things and give you episodes that you can share with your friends, for example, who are not going to sit there and listen to an hour and a half on capital theory, but maybe they'll listen to somebody explaining why the minimum wage is bad for 25 minutes or stuff like that. Okay, so... The other housekeeping announcement is, as I'm recording this, it's New Year's Eve, and the voting is still trickling in for the Louis C.K. Adventures in Pacifism contest. I know you're all waiting with bated breath to see who the winners of those are, but I don't want to speak too soon. I don't want to pull a Rudy Giuliani, you know what I'm saying? Okay, so we'll next episode, I'll probably be able to tell you, well, I'm going to record the intro of that too, the 174, we'll know for sure. So for those of you who entered, just hang on, folks. So today, what I'm going to be talking about is how is it that a market economy handles exhaustible resources, or just think in terms of finite resources, right? Things where nature, or God, if you want to get religious, has given us this stockpile of stuff that's useful to human beings, but it's really difficult for us to make more of it. And so for all practical purposes, at least for the foreseeable future, we should treat it as if what we have is what we got and there's no more coming. And so if we use a little bit of it, there's that much less for the future to use. And so how does a market economy handle that? And I think it's an interesting topic because for one thing, it's just interesting in its own, right? Just understand how do markets work, but also you'll see it's pretty elegant what the at least first pass solution is to that problem. 
and it solves some philosophical conundrums and it underscores the difference between a voluntary market approach from a coercive political approach. And it's ironic because the things that people would allege as to why the market can't be trusted with something like this are actually truer of the political approach. All right, so you'll see as we go through this what I'm talking about. But that's why I think this is an interesting topic. The person who in the history of economic thought gets the credit for this is Harold Hotelling. So he had a famous article in the Journal of Political Economy in 1931 called The Economics of Exhaustible Resources. Uh, with all this stuff in the history of economic or history of thought in general, wherever you point to and say, oh, this is the person who first came up with such and such, there's almost always some predecessor who is groping around with the idea first. In this case, I'm not sure who the antecedents would have been. Uh, I went and looked at Harold Hotelling's article again, and nothing was jumping out in terms of him citing previous literature. But in any event, this is the, the thing, the go-to article on this topic. If you're curious and want to see like a, a summary of it, a paraphrase in plain English, because, you know, his article does get technical. I did an econ lib article on that. So obviously, if you want to see either or both of those, just go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 172 and you'll see that, the links for those articles. So for our purposes now, let me just, first of all, explain what is it that we're talking about so again, the issue is what if there is some resource that there's only a, a fixed amount of, and so then when we use some of it, then we, we can't get it back or at least not easily. And with all this stuff, there's obviously, it, it's a spectrum. It's not an either or, but the, the, I guess, quintessential examples of this would be things like coal or oil, you know, fossil fuels, because we, we you know, given the current understanding of where they came from, it's a, it's a process that takes millions of years to develop more. And, you know, that's, that's not something that's going to be easily reproduced. Now, the problem, though, with dealing with that in the current environment is because of climate change politics, where the critics are going to allege that under capitalism, fossil fuels are developed too rapidly. You know, for some activists, they think fossil fuels should... You know, they, they should stop altogether. We should just leave it all on the ground, period, right now. And whereas other ones, I, I think, are more reasonable and say, oh, we got to come up with plans to gradually wean ourselves off this stuff. All right, so that's, it's tricky because what used to be the claim was that, oh, under capitalism, a fixed, exhaustible resource gets depleted too quickly because you know, private sector actors, all they care about is a quick buck today they're not thinking in terms of future generations. So we're going to burn up all the oil in the next 30 years and then leave our children and grandchildren up a creek without any petroleum, right? So that's, that's what the claim used to be, that there was regulation to come in for that reason. And so it's now because the argument has changed a little bit, it gets trickier, all right? And so for the purposes of this podcast episode, though, let me just put those, those issues aside. All right? Unfortunately, I can't, I was trying to come up with, is there some other example of an exhaustible resource? I guess you could say like diamonds, I suppose, would be an example, but that's, that's not too, you know, because you don't, you don't use up diamonds the way you use up coal and oil and natural gas. And so that, that doesn't 
ring is true in terms of the economic problem that we're discussing. All right, so like I say, for the purposes of this episode, put climate change stuff to the side and just let's let's assume that you know there's there's no problem in burning a barrel of crude oil or you know refining it and turning it into other products and then burning those except for the fact that oh if humanity today burns one more barrel of crude oil then that means the amount of barrels of crude oil that are being carried into the future is necessarily now one barrel fewer and so that means our descendants have one fewer barrel to work with and we need to take that into account or one would think we should be taking that into account in some fashion, right? So again, the claim putting aside climate change issues from the standard leftist interventionist would be that under capitalism, we would develop these natural resources too rapidly. By the way, you you see this also with things like fish and forests and stuff like that, where, oh, under capitalism, they just you know, rapidly cut down all the, clear cut the forests without taking into account the future regenerative powers of the soil and things like that, or with uh, overfishing in certain bodies of water. That though is a little bit more complex of a problem because again, if you, if you regulate, and by that, I don't mean from politically, I just mean in general, if you moderate the rate of extraction, then those things naturally reproduce. And so, you know, you have that issue, whereas again, with, it's almost like the pure case with something like coal or oil or natural gas, where the rate at which that is being replenished through natural processes is minuscule. And at least with our current technology, we can't really augment that. Okay. So that's why I think that fossil fuels are the the right example to work with just to really isolate this part of the problem. Okay. So that's the, the issue. So if you just sit back for a minute and just think it through, it is a vexing problem, right? That's what I was referring to earlier when I said it's almost philosophical because it can't be, the answer surely is not that we in the present are forbidden from burning any coal or oil or natural gas lest we give fewer amounts of those resources to our descendants, right? Because then once our descendants come of age and they're the ones making the decision, wouldn't they run through the same calculations and say, you know, the same ethical problem? And they would, you know, our children, in other words, would realize if that were the answer, if the answer is we can't use any of it because we have to leave it for our children. Well, then when our children grow up and then they're in the driver's seat and the car is not going anywhere because there's no gas, they also would then have to conclude, oh no, well, we can't use any, right? Because they would have to save it for our grandchildren or their children. So you see how that works? So it surely can't be that we can't use any of it to save it for the future because then that means humanity just never gets to use it, period. Um, I mean, I suppose unless at some point they see that there's an asteroid coming that's going to blow up the earth in 200 years and then they can work backwards and say, okay, there's no reason to hold any of this past the end of humanity. And so, but if in general, <laughs> it looks like as far as the eye can see, humanity is going to be sticking around, then it seems like it can't be the answer that we're just not allowed to use a period. But on the other hand, it does seem wrong just intuitively to say, let's totally forget that we are we're going to have descendants. Let's just act as if the current generation is it after us, the deluge, and let's just burn it up to, you know, 
if there's any use at all of burning an additional amount this year or, you know, within the next 20 years, let's go ahead and do that. And there's no reason to worry about any potential uses of this stuff carried beyond a 20-year horizon, let's say, just to pick an arbitrary length. That also seems wrong, right? Because it seems like you're giving inordinate weight to the desires or satisfactions of the current generation and you're saying future generations have no say whatsoever in the use of these resources. So that also seems odd. Now, even there, even as I'm just trying to lay out to you the two polar opposites and how we might come at this thing, the, the needs or the desires, the utility function, if you want to use that language, of, the, of future unborn generations can sort of slip in through the back door, even if we're formally saying, no, no, all we care about right now is us. And that's it. We're alive. We're making decisions. You know, what, what would it even mean to like try to give weight to the needs of creatures that don't even exist, that are just hypothetical possibilities? Um, here I'm referring to our unborn descendants, right? That is kind of weird to like be making decisions based on. But what you could do, the way you could say that, no, you can reconcile our, our intuitive feel that, yeah, well, we shouldn't just ignore them, right? But also, what would it mean, you know, in terms of the, formal, certainly legal structures, like, you know, how could they have a claim if they're not even alive yet? And so one way, like I say, that you can reconcile those two things is to say the present generation to the extent that they care about their own grandchildren, or even if they want to set up like an endowment, you know, some sort of philanthropic organization that, you know, you must, some people care about libraries, you know, Andrew Carnegie, you know, people call him, say the, the Carnegie Foundation. I'm calling him Andrew Carnegie. That's how I was taught. His name was pronounced. That's what I'm doing. Andrew Carnegie. And it was Vincent Van Gogh. I know in Doctor Who, they call him Vincent Van Gogh. But I'm calling him Vincent Van Gogh because I'm a dumb American. So they set up things like, you know, public libraries, you know, and endow it with a bunch of money so that the public can enjoy books into the future. And likewise, if you want, people in six generations to have some oil and go ahead and set aside a bunch of stuff in salt caverns. And there you go. And, you know, you used to store barrels of crude there and just set up some kind of trust and give instructions to the people running the foundation as to how it should be dispersed. So technically there, that would be satisfying both of the issues where, yes, it's the current generation whose preferences are totally being satisfied and formally we're not worried about the future, but to the extent that people in the current generation care about the future, then that's how, so like I say, sort of through the back door, decisions are made today that reflect the fact that the future will need it. But there's an even more elegant market solution. Like In other words, there, it's almost like you're getting into central planning. Not really, but you get the idea that it, you don't want people just to have to, you don't worry so much about, oh, gee, where should grocery stores be located 200 years from now? Let's make sure those people don't starve to death. We don't even worry about that in a capitalist system because you just know market prices, profit and loss, that's going to take care of that. You don't even worry about that kind of stuff. Likewise, we don't really need to worry so long as there's free and open markets in commodities and you know futures markets and things like that, futures contracts, forward contracts, other more sophisticated options. The fact that people in the future are going to want oil and natural gas and coal, that gets communicated to the present through the market price system, all right? And so 
we, we don't really actually have to worry about that stuff. So here, let me just explain to you what Harold Hotelling's solution is to this. And it's pretty simple once you walk through the, the logic and then we'll just see how that kind of solves these thorny problems. So the idea is just take a baseline framework, assume away all the real world thorny problems of extraction costs and stuff like that. And just say, imagine all the oil in the world is near the surface, like it's just in giant pools near the surface. And so, by the way, folks, here I'm sort of changing some of the details a little bit just for the exposition, right? So I'm not saying this is literally what Harold Hotelling said, but this is certainly what I'm saying now is inspired by what he did say. And if, you, if you're worried about like market power and stuff like that, assume that the oil is broken up so that there's thousands upon thousands of individuals who own small portions of the entire stockpile. Okay, so no one individual by his actions, by holding oil off the market can significantly change the, the world price. But the crucial thing is we know where all the oil is. Okay, so, so in the real world, yes, there's a sense in which all the oil that's on planet Earth or in planet Earth is there, period. But we don't know exactly where it is. And so that's when you see statistics like, oh, we only have 30 years of oil left at current rates of consumption. That's very misleading. All right, so I ran the numbers back in 1980, for example, if you looked at known crude oil reserves and you calculated what's the rate of oil consumption in 1980, there was about 30 years of oil left. And I remember when I was a kid, people would talk like that. They would say, hey, we need to get off of, to wean ourselves from our dependence on oil, partly because at that point they were worried about foreign oil dependency, but also because we only got 30 years of oil left. That's the way people talked in the early 80s. And I'm saying, I mean, does anybody remember in 2010 when the world ran out of oil? Remember that calamity? No, that didn't happen. We actually have more known reserves of crude oil now than we did in 1980. The total number of barrels in the ground of oil that people know about is bigger now than it was in 1980, even though the world has consumed a lot of oil since 1980. So how is that possible? Did we buy it from Martians? No, it's because they went out and found more. Okay, so it's true. The oil they discovered was always there. And so what that means is when they talk about known reserves of oil, that word known is doing a lot of work. But, but that kind of thing, I'm abstracting away from. We're here to talk about the baseline solution that Harold Hotelling gave us. All right, so assume that we don't have to go spend resources looking for it and finding more oil. Assume we already know where all the oil is and we're certain there's no more to be found. And like I say, it's also, if you don't want to worry about issues of monopoly price and stuff that some people care about, just to make it simple, assume the oil is, the, the known stockpile of oil that's on earth is broken up among many thousands of individual owners who don't own much of the total stockpile. There's no one person that controls that much. All right? Oh, and another thing, assume that they know what the demand for oil looks like into the foreseeable future. Okay, and, and by the demand, what I mean is, if you've taken an economics class, I don't mean how much oil will be demanded in each given year, what I'm saying is the relationship between the, the market price and the quantity that will be demanded at that price. So it's that relationship. It's the demand curve, if you want. Assume they know that relationship. 
far out into the future. So given those types of assumptions, then you can say, what's the equilibrium spot price of oil today going to look like? And then what's it going to look like into the future? And so what ends up happening is it, it's not the case that they consume all the oil today, like this year. Even though we're assuming the cost of extraction is zero, it's at the surface, let's just assume it's not hard to just take it and go sell it. It's not that they just burn all the oil, right? Which is what, sort of like the straw man that some extreme environmentalist or conservationist positions would, would entail, right? To say, oh yeah, private business just cares about short-term profits. They don't care about the future. So given the extreme assumptions we made for this scenario, if that view of what private business does were correct, that means they would burn up all the oil today. Just like if they are right, all the ranchers should just kill all the cattle this year. And then, you know, that's it. <laughs> so beef prices would be really low this year. And then they would shoot up to ridiculous amounts next year when there's nothing left. And that's not how markets work. And I think I just gave you a hint as to why. All right, so like guys with the oil, if they burned all the oil this year, well, in order to get people to buy that much oil, the price would have to come way down this year. Okay, and then the idea is if just one person who owns a little bit of the oil stockpile said, well, wait a minute, instead of me selling all my oil today at $3 a barrel, what if I just hold it off the market for a year and I wait till next year? And then given that everybody else right now is burning up all their oil and selling it, pushing the price down to $3 a barrel, if I just sell my, whatever, million barrels of oil that, I'm, that I start out with, is that, that I'm the owner of and I have control over, if I just carry my million barrels over to next year and then next year, that's it, everybody else is out of oil and I own all the oil on earth and I have a million barrels, I could sell them for whatever, $5,000 a barrel each. So instead of getting three this year, I'll wait one year and get 5,000 a barrel. That's great. So I'll do that. Okay, so it would never be an equilibrium outcome for all the oil owners to sell every last drop of oil this year. That would be crazy because again, that would push the price way down this year. And then that means the price in future years would go way up as the supply went to virtually zero that was available for sale, right? But then you know, go the other end, it's also not true that you would sell zero amount of oil this year and carry it all forward the next year for a similar reason, because then the price this year would shoot way up as they held oil off the market. Okay. So just seeing those two extremes, how that doesn't work in equilibrium where everybody's happy with, you know, their, their decisions and there's no, no individual producer can make more profit by rearranging his plans. In equilibrium, what it looks like is the spot price of oil increases every year with the interest rate. All right, so let me just pick nice round numbers. Suppose in the equilibrium, it's something like right now, this year, the price of oil is $100 a barrel and the going rate of interest is 5%. That means Right now, looking ahead, we have to think the spot price of oil next year will be $105. Why? Because people have to be, you know, they're going to sell some oil today and then carry and keep the rest in their pool and carry it forward to next year. They have to be willing to do that. And so to be willing to do that, there can't be an advantage 
to you know, rearranging their plans and selling more today and thus carrying fewer barrels in the future or selling fewer barrels today and carrying more into the future. They have to be happy with exactly what they're doing. And so I'm saying in that situation, that means on the margin, it's got to be roughly the same whether you sell, I mean, technically you got to use calculus and say an infinitesimal drop, but you guys get the point I hope here that it's virtually the same whether you sell one more barrel today at the spot price and then you get the money and you go invest it in bonds and then one year later that, so you, you sell a barrel today for $100, you take the $100, you buy bonds with it that yield 5%. So then by next year, that has grown, that $100 you had has grown into $105. That's one thing you can do with your property to carry wealth forward a year is you can turn your, your barrel of oil today into $105 next year if you sell it today and invest in bonds. Another thing you can do with your barrel of oil today is just to physically retain possession of it and carry it forward one year and then sell it. And you have to be willing to do that. That has to be roughly the same to you as the other strategy was. Because if it weren't, if they were significantly different, you would just do one versus the other. You'd shift out of one and into the other. Okay, so if it's basically the same, that means the spot price of oil this year is $100 and it has to rise to $105 by next year. Because again, you already know with that marginal barrel of oil you could turn it into $105 one year from now by selling it today for 100 and putting 100 you know into bonds that earn 5%. So since we know a lot of producers are going to choose to keep their oil in their pools and physically carry it into the future and not sell it this year they must be able to do at least as well with that strategy and so that means the spot price of oil has to rise up to $105 next year. All right. Does everybody see how that works? Let me just do one quick example where those weren't true just so you see what the problem would be. So suppose the spot price of oil only rose to 102 next year when the interest rate is 5%. So then you could see, oh, wait a minute. So I'm somebody in this original ostensible equilibrium who's going to sell the oil today for 100, put it in bonds. I can have 105 next year if I do that. But if I just hold the oil and carry it forward, then the spot price goes from 100 to 102. So you see why I wouldn't want to do that? Why would I hold oil and carry it forward if that strategy only gives me $102 next year with the oil that I've carried, when if I had just sold it the year earlier and put it in bonds, I would now have 105 you know, in the beginning of year two. So if that's the way the prices were, what you would do is you would rearrange your plans. Rather than doing what the equilibrium told you to do, equilibrium you know, strategies, you would sell all of your oil or you would sell more of your barrels of oil. Well, not you're, by assumption, you're not changing prices because you're such a, a tiny player. So you wouldn't carry any of your oil forward. If you thought, oh, next year, the spot price is going to drop to 102, or sorry, is only going to rise to 102. But right now, oil is selling for 100 and the interest rate's 5%. You would sell all your oil today at $100 a barrel, invest it in bonds, and then you would have gotten effectively 105 by next year for each barrel. And that's better than holding it, okay? But again, it can't be an equilibrium where everyone does that because that means everybody sells all their oil this year and we already seen that can't work. So again, what we're doing is when we say the equilibrium has to look like this, 
I'm just showing you this is the kind of thing that needs to be true so that people are willing to do what we, we kind of know what the answer is going to look like, right? We know the answer is going to be each year people sell some of the oil, but probably not all of it. So that over time, the supply of oil, the, the quantity available dwindles, but it's not like in any given year, boom, it just all gets sold. Or it's not true that in any given year, none gets sold and it all gets carried forward. At least not if things are kind of regular. I mean, if there's crazy changes in circumstances, then maybe you would see drastic moves like that. But I'm just saying if everything's kind of normal, just day-to-day life repeats year after year, but we have an exhaustible finite resource, this is kind of what the equilibrium looks like. That the spot price has to rise over time because as it gets, you know, as it dwindles away, it gets more and more scarce. So the price is going to go up. So that kind of makes sense. But I'm saying the price appreciation has to be mirroring what the interest rate is. And with all this stuff too, folks, obviously, um, you know, what's the interest rate? Okay, so we're abstracting away from a lot of complexities of the real market because there's different types of interest rates depending on the risk. But I'm just trying to give you this baseline understanding of this is the one component of the issue. All right? Folks, let's take a break from the discussion for me to once again remind you that if you like what you hear, you like the guests that I bring on and the perspective I offer in the solo episodes, by all means, consider making a contribution. The more such contributions I get, the more episodes I can do per month just as a justification for using my scarce labor hours on this outlet that I love, but yet does not fully pay the bills. And so I can only do it part-time thus far. For details on how you can do that and all the special bonuses, depending on your level of contribution, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Let me just mention, if you've made a qualifying contribution and you're supposed to get let into the Facebook secret group, it's a secret. And it's been more than two weeks since you've made the contribution and I haven't gotten back to you. That means I somehow missed the note in my inbox. And so don't be shy. Please get in touch and just let me know. Uh, Make sure that I get everybody in there who's supposed to be in there. Last thing I'll mention is whether you contribute or not, another way you can certainly help is subscribe to me on YouTube and when you come across an episode that you realize some of your friends might be interested in or, you know, a coworker, and I'm going to be trying to make more episodes that are catering to someone who's not a true believer, as it were, then sharing the episodes with people like that is another great way for me to get the podcast out in front of more people. Thanks, everybody, for your support. And let's get back to the episode. So that's, you know, the, the main essential insight of Hotelling's paper and it's, it's elegant and also notice it, it makes sense. It, it sort of lines up with the Austrian view that interest rates or the phenomenon of interest has to do with time preference. Because look at what happens. Suppose time preference goes way up. And so in equilibrium, the interest rate goes from 5% to 10%. Well, then that means that the spot price of oil now in this world has to increase at 10% a year. So if you think about what does the equilibrium have to be, so, sorry, let me back up a little bit. What I've really done so far is just establish that whatever the spot price is in year one, it's got to go up by the interest rate to year two. And then again, you know, whatever the interest rate is between year two and three, that's what it's got to go up again by and so forth. I haven't really established though, what's the absolute level. I've just shown like, what's the relationship I made up 100 just for a nice round number, but why, how do we know the spot price of oil would be $100 in equilibrium in year one? We don't. So then 
the other part of the problem is you would have to say, okay, it's also got to be true given, you know, that relationship between the percentage increase and what the spot price of oil has to be year after year. We also would have to, it would have to be true that given what the demand is for oil each year based on, hey, what's the, what's the price? Then this is how many barrels would get, people would want to buy. It's got to be the case that that's what the producers sell each year so that, you know, quantity demand equals quantity supplied. And that if you look over the entire lifetime or, you know, the, the entire history of all years of oil production and consumption, that the total amount event, you know, sold equals the total amount you had at the beginning. All right. And, and there's a little quirk that if you look at the end, it's not clear. It depends on, again, if you're going to do it using math, just to do a specific example, it has to do with the demand. Like, is there ever a point at which when the price gets so high, the demand for oil, the quantity demanded literally becomes zero. And then if that's the case, you can kind of work backwards. And you can say, okay, the spot price of oil is going to keep going up according to the principles we've talked about. But then at some distant point in the future, the spot price of oil is going to become so high that the quantity demanded is going to go to zero. And that's the point at which we better have burned just the last drop of oil right then. So then right when the price keeps going up year after year, the quantity of oil available keeps dwindling because we keep using some of it. And then eventually, just as that last drop gets burned, the market price hits the point at which society demands zero barrels of oil because it's so expensive. And then everything's still fine, right? There's, oh, there's no more oil left, but notice at that high price, the quantity demanded of oil is zero. So quantity supplied still equals quantity demanded. Everything's great. So it's got to be not just that it works out at that end point, but that through the whole history going forward, that every moment, yes, quantity supplied equals quantity demanded, but also that the lifetime production is exactly equal to the total number of barrels you started out with at time zero. All right, so that's technically the way you would solve the thing. All right, so now back to the point about the Austrians. So notice if the rate of interest is higher, let's say it's 10%, well, then that means the spot price of oil increases year after year at a faster rate. So if, if the beginning end is $100, that means by year two, it's got to go to 110 if the rate of interest happens to be 10%. So think of what that means. Why would it be that originally with the amount of oil brought to market and sold, the spot price is 100 and then next year it would have to be less oil is brought to market and sold for the price to be higher, right? With all this stuff I probably should have mentioned, we're, let's keep technology fixed. All right, again, we're just doing a baseline thing here just to solve the one problem first and then start introducing more complexity, all right? So we're not inventing new technologies here. All right. So if the spot price of oil is rising over time, as we know it must, then that means people are more economizing more and more on their use of oil. So the quantity demanded year after year is shrinking. And so I'm saying if the spot price of oil is rising more rapidly, then in that scenario, it means society consumes more of the oil sooner rather than later. Right. So again, if in scenario A, when the interest rate's 5%, the spot price of oil in year one's 100, and then in year two, it's 105. Society burned a certain amount of oil in year one, and then it burned less oil in year two. But in scenario B, when oil starts out at year one at $100, and then year two, it's 110, the amount 
that it burns in year two is less in scenario B than it was in scenario A. That's what I'm getting at. All right. And so I'm saying if you looked at the distribution, this is a way to think about it. If you looked at the original stockpile of oil and how many barrels you had total, and then you asked what percentage of that stockpile will be burned in year one, what percent will be burned in year two, and so on. So I, I don't mean the percentage of what's left. I'm saying look at the original pool and just say how much of that original pool is going to be used, you know, allocated to year one, how much of that original pool is going to be allocated to year two, and so on. You could get a sense of is it, you know, nearsighted or is it farsighted by like the how much is it concentrated in the early years versus the, is it more spread out uniformly? So it's definitely going to be, it's always going to be concentrated in the earlier, at least assuming the interest rate's positive. There's always going to be a present bias, as it were, because the, the spot price is always going to start out. Whatever the spot price is at year one, it has to be higher in year two. And then it's got to be higher again in year three and so on if the interest rate's positive throughout. But I'm saying the bigger the interest rate is, the more rapidly that spot price increases. And so that means it's got to be that the amount consumed originally was bigger in the earlier years, the higher the interest rate is. All right. So just, you know, convince yourself of that, like mathematically as it were, but then economically, I'm saying that makes sense, especially if you're an Austrian, because that, that all, again, that's all that showing is, oh, the more impatient society is, or the higher its time preference, the more it values present consumption relative to future consumption, then that means the faster it burns through the fixed resource. And that, that totally makes sense, right? Because that's really what the trade-off is. It's the trade-off between using something now versus later. So it makes sense that when the equilibrium interest rate is higher, society would burn oil at a faster rate than when it's lower. And notice too here, so it's, this really underscores what's wrong with the interventionist arguments. The present generation of business owners or property owners does take into account the future generation. And how does it do it? Through the price system. By just looking ahead and saying, oh, if we held the oil off the market now, what could we sell it for down the road? And also one last little thing, I've mentioned this before, I know. You don't have to worry about, well, what about people who are you know, going to be born well after the current owners are dead? The current owners can't get money from them. That's true, but the current owners can, when they get older, can sell the asset to other owners who then will carry it forward to the people who aren't, to the consumers who aren't yet born. Okay, so that's the issue too. So again, keep in mind, like if you're, if you just want to get out of the oil business, you're 90 years old and you want to just sell and set up your estate and you know, take care of your affairs and whatever, go travel a little bit and not worry about marketing oil. You don't have to just sell all the barrels on the spot production market to be burned or, you know, send, you don't have to sell them to refineries you can just sell your stockpile, your pool to some other owner who will then take control of the pool and will start making those decisions about how many barrels do I extract from the pool this year versus how many do I keep in the pool and carry forward to next year, right? So you, what you want to do as the owner is maximizing the market value of your pool of oil. And the way you do that is every time you're still in charge of it, you do the quote optimal profit maximizing rate of extraction where you're physically taking barrels out and selling them to refiners. But again, you can sell it for the highest market price to someone else who is going to continue following that optimal policy. All right. So again, just to make sure you got that point, I'm saying somebody who's 90 years old 
isn't going to all of a sudden just start extracting barrels at a crazy rate because, oh, the end is near. I might as well live it up and get some dollars out of this thing. No, because you can just sell the asset itself, the pool, to somebody and they'll give you a bunch of dollars for it. Way more than if you liquidated all of the actual barrels of oil to be burned. Okay? So there's that element as well. So in contrast to that, notice the political approach is extremely short-sighted. That if you're going to be regulating a resource, strictly speaking, unless you're altruistic, you know, what you care about is when you're in power. And that's a very short-term thing, you know, unless you're a, a monarch, with, especially with a, you know, hereditary monarchy. Okay, so this idea that government officials are more farsighted than private business men and women is, is crazy. It's, if anything, it's the exact opposite, just the nature of the institutions they work in. All right, and so what, going back to you know, some of those other examples of things like, oh, well, then why are the forests just you know, clear cut? And how come there's overfishing? The government has to come in and put in special regulations on you know, what kind of engines the boats can have and when the seasons are for hunting and fishing because those aren't privately owned resources. The government manages those areas and they do a really bad job of it. And in fact, like with the forests and stuff, so nationally managed forests, meaning by the government, there's examples where the uh, government officials in charge of that will give sweetheart deals to private timber companies who will then come in and yeah, and they'll, they'll overcut because that's what the contract calls for, right? They're, they're not going to maintain the capital value of the forest because the government owns it. So it's, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's the bureaucrats don't own it. They're just temporary caretakers of it. And so that's what leads to these absurd outcomes. Whereas if you had genuine private ownership of forests, then they would do what the optimal policy was to maximize the long-run market value of it. Or at least they would have the incentive to do that. Far better incentive than government managers who are really just in power for a short period of time. So their incentive is to cut sweetheart deals with private companies who then come in and rapidly exploit the resource while they're on good terms with the government. All right, so... That's the economics of exhaustible resources. I will wrap it up there. Hope everybody has a good New Year's and I will see you in 2021. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.